This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. It's time we accept bad weather as a vital natural resource, one we as a nation should be proud of. Which proves that for pure chilling horror, nothing can beat cold hard facts. Beyond all the crises, the wealth machine pulls money up to the 1%. It just makes more even during disaster. The worse things get, the less for everyone else. Author and activist Marjorie Kelly, Wealth Supremacy, How the Extractive Economy and the Biased Rules of Capitalism Drive Today's Crises. How long can we keep burning fossil fuels before losing a livable climate? 2030? From Imperial College London, Dr. Robin Lambeau led a team study assessing the size and uncertainty of remaining carbon budgets. The reality is, we are on a short carbon fuse. I'm Alex Smith. Welcome to Radio EcoShock. Remember the bad old days when a few European countries divided the world among themselves? They hauled in wealth from their colonies. Today, most of us are colonized, whether we know it or not, by invisible nations of capital, and they're always working to divert wealth to the few, even during disaster. It's all in a new book by Marjorie Kelly, Wealth Supremacy, How the Extractive Economy and the Biased Rules of Capitalism Drive Today's Crises. Kelly is an award-winning writer with a master's in journalism, currently distinguished senior fellow at the Democracy Collaborative. She was co-founder and president of Business Ethics magazine. From New England, Marjorie Kelly, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Yes, Alex. Thanks for having me. In recent news, after a public outcry, massive Saudi Arabian landholdings in Arizona just lost ownership of all the water. You opened your new book talking about the water crisis. What can that teach us? It's scary what's happening with water, Alex. And it's a prime example of how uh, big capital is really devouring everything and looking always for new, quote, unquote, assets to acquire. So big capital, including hedge funds, is out there in Colorado, in California, buying up water rights. Fortune magazine said a number of years ago that water in the 21st century will be what oil was in the 20th century, which is the scarce resource that determines the wealth of nations. I mean, the UN says that by mid-century, half the world's population will suffer shortages of scarce water. Now, you and me and our, your listeners probably look at that and think that's a humanitarian crisis. You know, water is a public good. We need to protect it. Well, big capital looks at that and says that's a money-making opportunity. We want to own it. We want to control it so they can charge uh, through the roof for it. So I, I, I start the book with this because it's an example of, of two paths forward. We can continue to allow capital to devour everything, or we can own and protect our economy and make it a democratic economy. And that's, that's what I think we need to work for. Well, forget about the Roman Empire or the British Empire. You write, quote, Today's empires are portfolios of assets. 
can we be subjects in a colonial empire and not know about it? Yeah, that is the reality. I mean, we don't, we do not see ourselves as colonized. Um, I mean, even our language is colonized. When I mean, we talk about uh, how Wall Street creates wealth, well, in fact, it extracts wealth and extracts from ordinary people our pocketbooks in the form of of debt and rising rents and 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 bad jobs that are you know corporations are pushing workers out of good jobs and and switching that income to capital extracts big capital is extracting from the planet here's a, a scary fact alex in 2021 fossil fuel companies saw their share price increase 60%, right? So these are, you know, the wealthiest 10% who own 89% of shares uh, in, in the stock market. And, and most of that wealth is at the very top. So we had a wealthy few making out like bandits uh, selling fossil fuels. And we know what's happening. I mean, the skies over San Francisco have been orange with flames. New York City has seen flash flooding. So Capital is extracting from the planet in order to create wealth for itself and and completely disregarding the impacts on everyone else. But let me stay with that for a minute because we tend to look at that and we think, oh, Exxon Mobil is the bad guy. The CEO of Exxon is the bad guy. And the point that I'm making with wealth supremacy is that, no, the problem is the system. The problem is the mindset that tells us no amount of wealth is ever enough, um, which is the first myth of the system, the myth of maximizing. And so portfolio income must be maximized regardless of the impact on anyone else. And um, this is what our pension funds are doing, what our, our foundations and universities are doing. So it, the whole thing is on autopilot. Alex, and this is, I think, why it's imperative that we that we wake up. And, and I'll just uh, finish here by saying that systems change tells us that that the soul of the regime lives in the mind of the regime. That's where it lives. It's not just the bad guys, and of course, there's plenty of those. But we have to attack this idea that no matter wealth is ever enough. The, uh, this idea that our system exists to maximize returns for investors. That's the core of the problem. So Marjorie, if you and I went out on the street with a microphone, I wonder how many people could tell us what financialization means. What does it mean for all of us? First thing is that financialization is a problem as big as climate change and far more invisible. Economists have warned us about it literally for decades. And what it means is there's too much financial capital in the world in too few hands. So you have this very spiky phenomenon where these these mega wealthy hold this enormous number of assets. And assets grow by extraction. They extract from from workers by, you know, turning full-time jobs into into part-time and, and contingent jobs they extract from the from the planet, and and th- those assets have to grow every quarter and every year. And so, here's a, a picture I have in the book. Let's envision two spheres. One is sitting on top of the other, right? 
so the lower sphere is what we call GDP, gross domestic product. This is really the flows of income and, and spending that we think of as our economy. It's the real economy. You have a job, you get a paycheck, you spend it. That's, that's tracked in GDP. But there's another sphere, and that's financial assets, uh, you know, stocks, bonds, uh, all kinds of debt, and so on. So that sphere, when I was a, a kid, um, used to be roughly equal to GDP. So assets and GDP were equal. Today, financial assets are five times GDP, and yet they're built to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow, and the economy is built to grow them and to do nothing else. So that's the problem of financialization. I mean, a system built on wealth supremacy inevitably heads toward financialization. So you have too much financial wealth extracting from the rest of us. And yet the the myths of the system, you know, that, well, stock market creates wealth, you know, these myths keep us from seeing what's going on. And it seems whatever comes in short supply or something you need for life, even a drug that people need to stay alive, it's just a market opportunity. They drag out more wealth from desperate, subjugated people. If it's food that you need or heat for the winter or AC for the heat waves, it's all a big chance to make even more money, and they do. What did you think of Naomi Klein's book, Disaster Capitalism? Well, I think she named uh, a phenomenon really quite well, which is that that the system of, of big capital is quite happy to profit from whatever is going on, right? If it's disaster, they'll go out and profit from that. You know, if it's if it's fossil fuel burning, they'll go out and profit from that. It's really the system is formally indifferent to its impacts on, on the real world. And and let me just say a minute here how it is formally indifferent. There's a there's a principle in financial and corporate accounting called materiality. Now, what is material to ordinary people like me <laughs> and like our listeners, material means it's 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 real. You know, it's like a rock. You kick it, it's gonna hit your hurt your toe or it's gonna move. That's what what uh, materiality means. But in the upside-down Alice in Wonderland world of financial accounting, materiality means what's real for investors. So if it, if it affects investors, it's material, and you have to report on it. You know, for example, we had uh, Elizabeth Holmes apparently lied to her investors and ended up in prison for that. She failed to disclose her product uh, didn't work very well. So that was considered material, and she didn't disclose it, and that was illegal. But will your product harm the planet? Will it damage workers? Will it, will it extract from the society? None of that is considered material unless it impacts capital. <laughs> so there's, it's this tautology of capital bias. The only thing that matters is gains to capital, and this other stuff matters only to the extent that capital will be affected. So it's this strange, insular world, Alex, that it really sees only financial gains as real and everything else is not. 
Well, in old world parlance, we used to talk about the proletariat of the common people. Those are the workers, the lower class or something like that. But in your book, you talk about the precariat, and I think that's a good term. Could you tell us about it? I emphasize how we lack the correct metrics to allow us to see what's actually going on in our economy. I talked about financial assets are five times GDP. We don't have that metric out there. Another metric we don't have is measuring uh, the precariat or the the insecure workforce, and this includes part-time, subcontract, gig workers, self-employed, you know, temp agency. All of these are called contingent, or I would say it's the throwaway workforce. And this is now 40% of all workers. The federal government did a count many years ago and only did it once and hasn't done it again. So what we're talking about unemployment. Look how low unemployment is. But we're not talking about how bad the jobs are, how insecure these jobs are. So we, we completely lack understanding of how precarious labor is for most people. Meanwhile, what do we know uh, about financial assets? Well, minute by minute, we track each stock, each bond, how it moved constantly. But labor, n- no doing. We have so little information. We don't really know what's going on. I can think of three times in American history when Democratic politicians attempted to rein in wealth and ownership. You've got the trust-busting of Theodore Roosevelt, then the New Deal during the 1930s Depression, and in 1941 to gear up for World War II. There really hasn't been much intervention other than that, well, maybe to bail out major banks and institutions when they fail. Can Western democracies reform the financial ecosystem? I think that's the question, isn't it? I think, first of all, we need to see that it's a problem. And and this is how we've been we, we've been hoodwinked, or I think a better uh, way to say it is we've been put to sleep by the lingo of the system. And, and I don't mean to sound like a conspiracy theorist here. I think it's, I, I call it capital bias, this bias through institutions and practices that favors capital. I call it wealth supremacy. I think it's really a form of blindness in the same way that racial bias, I think, was largely unconscious. I think, I think you know, male bias was largely unconscious. It's, it's a way of seeing the world. You see the world through a certain lens, and you just aren't aware that other people see it differently. So we have to see what's going on. That, that's the first thing. We have to talk to each other about it. We have to recognize the financial extraction is enormous problem and it's at the root of so many crises that we face. I mean, that's the first thing before we jump to solutions. Um, we need broad awareness. And then there are there are solutions. Uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren has a bill that would rein in private equity, which is, I call the apex predator these days, you know, worker ownership. There are ways to expand worker ownership. There's also a bill out there to begin shifting capital toward funds that will buy companies and convert them to worker ownership, which is a proven model. So, yes, when you say, can we reform it, I I like to separate that into two questions. And one is, is it feasible that we could have a system that's designed uh, for all of us and not just for the few? And and yes, it is feasible. The, The methods and models we need are here and they work. That We have proof of concept. Now, can we get from here to there? 
that that's the question, and that's where I think I see that we're at a pre-awareness phase. We're not aware that capital bias and wealth supremacy is the nature of a lot of the problems we face. And I think once we begin to see that, we can coalesce around solutions. This is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog, ecoshock.org. No sign up, just the latest info, free for all. Ecoshock.org. You are listening to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is Marjorie Keller, author of Wealth Supremacy How the Extractive Economy and the Biased Rules of Capitalism Drive Today's Crises. And speaking of today's crises, do you see a link between this wealth supremacy and the climate change that so many of our listeners are deeply worried about? Absolutely. Climate change is a physical reality that is the result of how our system functions. But companies and all of us, the reason that we're burning fossil fuels is because this is a way that companies can maximize their profits and their share price. I mean, why is Exxon diluting us or pretending to be going green when it's not really? Because it's beholden to shareholders. The shareholders alone, financial interests alone, have a seat on the board. Workers don't have a seat on the board. The community doesn't have a seat on the board. Um, The company defines its purpose as maximizing returns to shareholders. And that's not just Exxon. That's what the business schools teach. That's what is built into the design of corporate governance. And so we have this, this whole system that says serving shareholders matters, nothing else really matters. And one of the effects of that is you have fossil fuel companies that refuse to change their ways, even though it's clear to them and everyone else that, that the world is, is being massively damaged. So, yes, uh, climate change is one of the big results of a system designed to serve capital and nothing else. And surely one of the secrets to capitalist control is secrecy itself. Uh, the release of the Panama Papers showed an extensive web of hidden big money held behind multiple corporate veils around the world. Banks work in secrecy. The stock market does. So does crypto. We sure need a lot of sunlight if we're going to democratize the economy. We do. We do. We need a lot of sunlight. We need, for example, well, we need to know where the assets are and, and, and people need to pay their taxes. I mean, that's, that's pretty basic and that's, uh, even that's not, not being done. We need to understand how financial assets are completely overblown in relation to the real economy. We need, we need transparency of that. And, and I think that we need transparency in our minds of how biased the rules of capitalism are, how corporate governance is biased toward capital. Even the income statement is biased, and this is a basic tool of every company. You know, it says gains to capital are called profit, and that's good, and, and drive it up, and, and gains to workers are called expense, and that's bad, and drive it down. You know, so you need to pay capital as much as possible in workers as little as possible. That's built into the income statement. And you know, that drive to, to minimize income to labor, that's a lot of what has created the right-wing reaction, these, these, you know, a disaffected 
white working class is looking for culprits and solutions and not recognizing that capital is, is the culprit. And so, you know, we're even losing our democracy because of, of wealth supremacy. Well, I think another side to what you just said, I mean, monarchies and other institutions were designed not to change, and religions are definitely designed not to change. And despite the democratic veneer, our current civilization is fighting change. People want to go back to the good old days, which were not all that good if you were black, an immigrant, a woman, or gay. Not that great. But we imagine it was, and I think that's part of the problem. Why can we imagine a better past and yet not a better future? That's a really key question. Uh, someone said that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is the end of capitalism. So there tends to be a fatalism about capitalism that we can't change it. It's, it's the only system that's possible. Socialism and communism are horrible. And by the way, we have this idea that our choices are binary. We either socialism or capitalism, we don't recognize we can invent something new. Yeah, so I think it's hard for people to imagine a different kind of economy. And I, I spend about half of my book, Wealth Supremacy, showing how it can be different. And this is the work I've been doing, Alex, for 30 years, working for worker ownership. And our organization, the Democracy Collaborative, is working for what we call community wealth building, which is at the city level, and we're doing work in Amsterdam and Chicago and Preston, England, has had a lot of success with this. You know, mayors and economic development people at the local level know their communities are in trouble, and they're looking for alternatives. And so the next system is starting to arise at the local level, and this is what a lot of our work is. Trying to help people envision a different kind of economy and seeing it take shape at the local level. I know in Europe there are major corporations that have workers with seats on the board of directors. I see very little of that in America. Do you think workers should run their own corporations? Well, I think workers should certainly have a stake in the wealth that they help to create. And I I think that they should have a voice. And we know that companies run better when workers have a voice and when they have a share in the gains. There are already 6,000 substantially worker-owned companies in this nation, including Recology in the Bay Area, which is a billion-dollar company. It's 100% owned by its workers. It's waste-hauling and recycling and composting. Its mission is a world without waste. And garbage truck drivers make $100,000 because... When you're not owned by investors and you're not skimming off so much for them, there's more to go around for workers. So worker-owned companies are feasible and they're practical and in many ways are superior to investor-owned companies. So, yeah, I I think that that is a model that we need in a democratic economy. It's highly um, practical. We talk about, well, let's get everybody involved together and we'll all make joint decisions. But I have to say earlier in life I was part of a food co-op. And it ended up just a couple of people were doing all the work, and it folded, and then a private bulk food business rose in its place. The land communes of the late 70s had problems, and often they were subdivided later into private properties. It's hard, and California went through this several times. What makes you think participatory social ownership can work? You're right. 
it, it is hard. And I think part of it is that we have a lot of delusions about the nature of democracy in the economy. We think everyone should be equal. We think a decision-making should be flat, um, and there should be no leaders. And and that simply isn't true. That isn't that isn't how it works. I mean, you and I don't vote on which streets are paved in our cities, right? Uh, democracy is about far more than just everyone being equal and having a vote on everything. There's decision-making patterns that, that function. So there, what I'll say is that there's a whole community of experts in worker ownership who know how to create worker voice and participation without going down the diluted route of um, everybody voting on everything or pretending that leaders don't matter, because leaders do matter. Yes, it can work, and we have a lot of learning to do, Alex. We have a lot of misconceptions about, about how to create a democratic economy. I just interviewed Carly Fabian of the NGO Public Citizen. They discovered the largest insurance companies publicly promised to get out of coal but the fine print lets them keep insuring America's biggest and dirtiest coal companies. It's loophole ethics, and there are no police in that space. Is there a third-party assessment of corporate ethics and reality? Who can we trust? Yeah, these are good questions. Uh, I don't think a third-party uh, assessing ethics is, is the way it's going to be. And here's a lesson from democracy that I think we, we do need, and that is people need to protect their own interests, right? People need to have voice. You know, we need workers on boards or worker representatives on boards. We need public interest representatives on boards. There are some companies that have put representatives of nature on, on their governing board. We can devise ways to govern companies and investments that consider the public good. There are models out there of how, of how to do this. So we can do it. I think it needs to be inside uh, these entities. And, of course, it also needs, needs to be outside. For example, Elizabeth Warren has, has floated a bill that says companies with over a billion in revenue needed a federal charter as opposed to a state charter, which they all have now. And within that, they would have fiduciary obligations to the public good and 40% of, of board seats would be reserved for workers. It's an example of a model of how, you know, companies need to evolve. Investing needs to evolve. Working only to benefit capital is, is primitive and archaic, and, and we do need to evolve, and, there's, and we need to get smart about how to do it. And there are a lot of people who have figured it out. I've seen that as a journalist over 30 years. There's so much that's been figured out. Well, could you give us a couple of examples of successful tools that can make work and life a, a better place? Sure. Uh, I, I mean, certainly we need more unions. I mean, if if workers want to join a union, they should be able to join it. It should be as easy as joining a mutual fund, right? Nobody fights you if you want to join a mutual fund. That, that's basic. We also do need, you know, worker ownership. And as I said, there's 6,000 of these companies out there and they're and they're working, and many are, 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 are B corporations, which means they have a public benefit um, designed into them. Uh, so those are some of the mechanisms, and impact investing is another mechanism, and we can all do that now. Those of us who are fortunate to have a little bit in assets can begin to say, how can I use my assets to have beneficial 
social and ecological impact. And there are a growing number of funds that are focusing on this. So we, we can begin this, this transformation. In many countries, from Europe to Australia and America, it seems like we're losing things. We're losing democracy. We're losing public access to, to good health care, the environment. Should we fight back? What kind of activism is acceptable, given the stakes? I think, first of all, we need to recognize that that we're at a turning point with our civilization and, in particular, with our economy. That, that we just we cannot go on with an economy designed to create maximum wealth for the few. That is not going to be sustainable. It's not sustainable now, and it will not be a way to live well on this planet for millennia to come. So we're at a turning point where a way of organizing civilization is is reaching its end, and there's a lot of panic and misunderstanding. As you said, people want to go back to the good old days. But I think those of us who understand that system change is what we need, we need to, to talk to each other. We need to read. I really encourage people, you know, to read my book, Wealth Supremacy. I've made it very readable. I make a dollar book, by the way, so this is my get-rich-quick scheme, right? <laughs> but read, read other things in this area. You know, get together, talk with each other. Very much like, I think, second-wave second feminism in the 1970s. We have to talk to each other. We have to get together and begin to figure out what does system change look like? How can we begin to get there? I, I think that's what we urgently need to do. We have been speaking with Marjorie Kelly, author of the new book, Wealth Supremacy, How the Extractive Economy and the Biased Rules of Capitalism Drive Today's Crisis. You can get links to follow up in my show blog at ecoshock.org and check out marjoriekelly.org. And I'll point out Marjorie spelled with an I-E instead of a Y at the end, marjoriekelly.org. Marjorie, thank you for being a light in a dark place and talking with us today. Alex, thanks for having me. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. Frankly, listeners want to tune out instantly when they hear politicians talk as though 1.5 degrees warming over pre-industrial is still possible. Many don't believe it. But we are being sold a climate future as though there is a workable plan. Thankfully, scientists are asking a lot of hard questions about that. Dr. Robin B. Lambole is part of a group checking official climate plans, among other things. Lambole has a Ph.D. in physics of solar cells from the University of Cambridge and a master's in natural sciences. She led the paper, Assessing the Size and Uncertainty of Remaining Carbon Budgets. That was published October 30th in Nature Climate Change, and there is no shortage of uncertainty about our climate future. From the Center for Environmental Policy at Imperial College London, Robin Lambole, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hello, thank you for having me. Your new paper and others you co-authored this year, Cross-Check Climate Promises. Why is that worthwhile? 
So uh, governments uh, have signed up to this Paris Agreement, which says that they're going to uh, keep temperatures well below two degrees below pre-industrial and making efforts towards 1.5 degrees. So we need to check whether they're doing enough to actually keep to those promises. We can't say exactly who is and isn't because that's a political problem rather than a physics problem, but we can sort of say, okay, given what's currently happening, what space is there to still uh, keep to these promises? And, you know, are we on track at the moment? Well, yes, the new paper is about the remaining carbon budget, or RCB. What is that? The remaining carbon budget is the amount of CO2 that we can <clears throat> emit while still remaining at some probability of not passing a certain temperature threshold at a certain probability. So, for instance, the 1.5 degrees 50% budget uh, would be the amount of carbon you can emit before we'd exceed a 50% chance of exceeding 1.5 degrees. The other carbon budgets of interest for the Paris Agreement would be two degrees targets. For this, you might talk about um, the 50% budget, but since the target is for well below two degrees, really you might um, want to look at one of those higher budgets. So maybe the 66%, 83% or even 90% probability budgets that you're below two degrees. Well, is it so late in climate change that we can only talk about having half a chance left of a really livable climate? Uh, for 1.5 degrees, yes, I'm afraid uh, even even that budget is very small at the moment. Um, I, I guess the question is more like, what do we consider to be a livable climate? I mean, certainly many areas of the globe will still be livable at 1.5 or, or even 2 degrees. But, um, you know, obviously some island nations will be submerged uh, at those temperatures. And, uh, yeah, d different variations in like degrees of livability. I think it's important to like keep in mind that we're always talking about like fighting for some areas of land uh, to retain their habitability and their uh, being above sea level. Um, but we're not really talking for any of these temperatures about like the entire world becoming uninhabitable. Well, for the last few months, Earth is already 1.5 degrees hotter and the World Meteorological Association organization says that uh, one year within the next five will be 1.5 degrees C, hotter than pre-industrial times. You have co-authored studies on this. Is the 1.5 degree target still worth talking about as an attainable future? In the short run, it is very unlikely. I think that's fair to say now. When we talk about this 1.5 degree budget, it is important to note that that is the long run temperature. So to have a few months or even a whole year more than 1.5 degrees doesn't mean we've yet exceeded that temperature because this is a temporary uh, temperature, which includes both the human forcing and also natural variability. So the effects of, say, volcanoes and um, just yearly variation. So the fact that this year is hot is a combination of both uh, human uh, climate change and also some unusual phenomenon that we're hoping over the next few years would die back down to normal levels. There's obviously debate as to how much of which of the two is dominant. Um, but we're we're most likely not above 1.5 degrees yet, um, but the space to remain below 1.5 degrees is really very small. I think it's fair to say that if it wasn't in the Paris Agreement, we wouldn't be talking about it quite so much uh, as we are at the moment. Uh, but because it is in the Paris Agreement, um, there are suggestions, for instance, that we might exceed it and then return back down to it, in which case it's still important to have a grasp of where it is uh, in relation to uh, our, our current status. Um, and people are also saying, okay, so most likely we're going to exceed it, but we can still try and keep that exceedance probability um, as small as we can. 
Well, according to the results of your paper, is the end of carbon burning before we pass 1.5 or 2 degrees very close in time? Yes. So for 1.5 degrees, um, with our current rate of emissions, we're going to exceed that uh, with, uh, within the next six years. And really, we're, we're down to only a little bit over five years now, since an awful lot of one of those years has elapsed and we haven't really reduced emissions over this year. It, it looks like emissions are going to be slightly up on last year. So for 1.5 degrees, yes, we're extremely close to that. For two degrees, actually, the budget change is much smaller. So we have lost a little bit of time compared to our, our previous estimate, but not as much as for the 1.5 degrees. We, we have obviously not been reducing emissions over the last three years. So obviously, there was a small decrease due to um, COVID, but then we rebounded back up past where we were in, in 2019, even by 2021. And by 2022, uh, and now looking like 2023, we're both marginally increasing on that again. So with with record emissions levels, uh, as we probably have this year and certainly had last year, the amount of time is, is rapidly decreasing. But for some probability of, of uh, two degrees, so talking about maybe the 50% or the 66 or 99%, uh, sorry, 90%, um, we have some manner of decades still before we're going to exceed that. And with a couple of decades, uh, that still is compatible with net zero targets of, of 2050. And you do see governments with those targets already. So these are the same order of magnitude as current government commitments. So for, for the well below two degrees target, we're talking about governments doing what they've said they'll do, rather than trying to persuade governments uh, to, to sign up to much stronger conditions than they currently have, uh, which obviously is still something we need to do, like governments don't necessarily always keep to their commitments. Um, but it's a, a sort of different stage of the climate activism uh, ladder, as it were. So scientists set up climate models based on past observations within what is relatively reliably known, we hope. And now we experience events and speeds of change never seen before. It's possible important tipping points may be in the rear view mirror. What does that kind of bad news do to these plans from the international COP climate process? Um, we set it up using using observations, um, both like the recent historical uh, data and also sort of some signals from long term, uh, like paleoclimate or, or the ancient climate data, and also from uh, simulations of how we expect the world to work. All of these sorts of lines of evidence combined to give us some sort of like uh, what's known as a, a prior distribution. Uh, so what this is what we'd expect. And then each year we receive uh, new temperature data. This year's temperature data has obviously been very concerning. It's much hotter than we've ever seen before. And so you might say that over time, we, if we see this again next year, we should look to update our climate models quite substantially. One year's worth of data, however, is quite small compared to all of the data we have uh, across the, the rest of, of history. So with only one year's uh, extreme warming, we probably aren't going to change our numbers very much. Whereas if we see that for two or three or five years, uh, we'll be looking at much stronger updates to our climate models. Analyzing possibilities in such a complex world required breaking the problem into relatively solvable parts, and each sub-process has its own uncertainties and error margins. Adding them up as you do, I ask myself, are we talking about anything real? So I was relieved to find in the supplementary information, your group actually discusses the need for a sanity check, as you say. The whole process of remaining carbon budgets, it seems a little like alchemy to me. Yeah, we, we 
I think it's important to have like lots of different ways of calculating this to make sure that we're coming up with reasonable answers. So one of the sanity checks is to try and see how we do in our model compared to different uh, climate models. But the actual idea behind the carbon budget is to minimize our uh, reliance on any single climate model, because obviously all models have their flaws and we want to see what statements we can make, which depends as minimally as possible on climate models. We do need to use climate models because there are so many different factors and it's impossible to assess all of them sort of by hand individually, particularly uh, effects like aerosols, where the uncertainty in them is very large and the way to judge how uh, how impactful aerosols are is very complicated. So we we do use climate models and see how, uh, how exceedance of 1.5 degrees would happen in various climate models. But the general idea of the carbon budget is to sort of divorce your, your thinking from having to be entirely reliant on climate models, all of which, of course, have their own individual flaws. Your study and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uses the idea of shared socioeconomic pathways, or SSPs. What are they, and do they change the amount of greenhouse gases allegedly left to burn? Yes. So the SSPs are sort of ways to envision the world panning out. Um, so SSP1 is like, what's happen what, what happens if there are very low barriers to people going green? Like the world puts a lot of effort in. Um, SSP2 is the sort of middle of the road one. And I would say that um, the IPCC used to be very reliant on this framework, but over time it's become clear that we are developing most in line with an SSP2 world. And so nowadays people tend to focus on versions of SSP2 world. So SSP2 world has like middle of the road change in population, middle of the road uh, enthusiasm for uptake of new technology, middle of the road look uh, middle of the road tendency towards say renewable energy rather than nuclear middle of the road international cooperation um, and by and large that's been what we've seen over the last sort of five years or so they, the other numbers are basically um, some sort of uh, strong problem with trying to get international agreements to uh, meet net zero targets and then looking at how those problems play out in terms of the balance um, of greenhouse gases emitted so most of these SSP worlds, can meet the Paris Agreement to some extent. So you'll see, for instance, that um, in the SSP1 world, which is like the most green world, you can reach temperatures uh, that are well below 1.5 degrees, whereas maybe in the SSP4 world, where there's a very high amount of like fighting between different nations, that's political fighting as well as possibly um, actual wars, you find that it's much more difficult uh, to, to reach those um, very low temperature limits. Whereas by contrast, um, SSP5 is probably one of the most famous ones because this has the SSP585 pathway. Um, this is the sort of boogeyman that's been used in a lot of uh, climate modeling. It's the very high emissions, very high warming future scenario. People are now sort of trying to tend away from this being uh, used in a way that it's considered as like a baseline or like a normal behavior because it's so different from how history has been panning out recently. But we still need to use some sort of social projection in order to get an estimate of aerosols and uh, methane and other gases that are emitted. The carbon budget looks only at carbon emissions, but we know that carbon emissions correlate with a whole bunch of other emissions. Uh, often, of course, like if people are, are getting their carbon from methane, 
there will be some leakage of that methane that's inevitable. When you uh, burn the whatever methane or, or coal, you're going to create aerosols. So the precise amounts of these other gases emitted is hard to estimate precisely, but we know that it's going to correlate in some way with um, with CO2. So we want to take account of those correlations when we're doing this model to say, you know, we have this much carbon budget. This is uh, the limit, assuming that you do uh, what we've vaguely predicted in these um, SSP projections would be a normal amount for a world where you're emitting this much carbon dioxide. Um, there's not really a way around this, but we do do a lot of robustness checks in the paper to see how much would it change if we say only used um, projections from one family of SSP emissions, or how would this change if you only use one single model of how society works, looking across different SSP worlds. Um, and what we find is that it, it does matter, um, certainly for the 1.5 degree budget, because the budget is so small, you can easily um, change it by a, a factor of, of a half. However, um, for the larger budgets, it doesn't matter very uh, doesn't matter as much. Um, and there's no sort of systematic tendency. It's not like if we use this model, you would always get a much larger budget. Or if we were in this SSP world, you would always have a much smaller budget. Um, it's more that, you know, everything is so small, so minor differences just make a lot of difference to the results. If you have a story idea or thoughts on something you've heard, contact us, radio at ecoshock.org. That's radio at ecoshock.org. You are listening to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is Dr. Robin Lambeau from Imperial College London. We are talking about the amount of coal, gas, and oil you and I can burn before climate goes beyond the human niche. While media and politicians speak about carbon dioxide as the only greenhouse gas that matters, yet 25 to 30 percent of current warming is due to methane, just one of several non-CO2 gases. So I was pleased to see that you did address this in the paper. How did you handle non-CO2 inputs to these carbon budgets? So what we do is we take um, an entire database of possible social projections for how society might change over time. And we look at how much they warm in each of these projections using um, two different climate models called magic and fair. We take these estimates of total warming and then we take the simulation where you take out all of the gases except CO2. You see how much it warms in a CO2 only world. And the difference between that and the one where you include all the other gases, this is known as the CO2 warming. So we compare the total warming to the CO2 only warming. Um, and the difference between those is the non-CO2 effect. Um, this also can include effects such as like the change in albedo from um, deforestation or effects like that, which are sort of not exactly CO2, but sort of, again, you would expect to relate to how much uh, forest we're cutting down and therefore um, how much we're expecting to emit via burning and, and other sort of effects of that order. So these um, non-CO2 effects, we we have to be dependent on, on the database of emission scenarios. But what we do to make sure we're not just uh, dependent on the biases within that is to also check it against a different uh, database of emission scenarios. And we find that for 1.5 degrees, this makes almost no difference at all because there are just um, so few scenarios that, that show us meeting the 1.5 degree budget. And those scenarios are very strongly constrained in what you have to do in order to get there. For the two degrees budget, it matters distinctly more, but still doesn't really matter that much. Um, so we're, we have some degree of confidence that our estimates are quite reasonable, even if this is not to say that 
if we do more work to reduce methane emissions, you would get a larger effective carbon budget. But as things stand, we have reason to believe that the amount of effort we'll put into reducing methane emissions will be kind of in line with the amount of effort we put into reducing CO2 emissions. Another major hinge point for the carbon budget is the date for net zero. And as they say in IPCC reports, I have low confidence in those promised dates, or even if net zero will happen. Talk to us about the net zero problems. Yeah. So uh, this latest paper doesn't uh, attempt to say, you know, what the probability that uh, governments will will do what they say is. We simply calculate what you'd need to do. Um, but in a previous paper that we produced, we looked at different governments, what are known as NDCs, nationally determined contributions, and see whether um, governments have put in practice legislation to actually enforce this whether emissions are currently trending down, because if you sort of say you're going to be uh, net zero by 2050, but your emissions are still going up, that looks a little bit suspicious. And, uh, and you know, whether people have got plans for how they're going to go about getting uh, to net zero. On the whole, we do unfortunately find that an awful lot of these net zero targets do not have very much by way of legal mechanisms to bring them about, um, which is not to say that governments are definitely not going to meet them. But at present, we would have low confidence in them being followed. There's a limit to how much we can uh, predict on this, because, of course, you know, it depends who's in power, what they're doing, what the sort of general political appetite is for these things. And we are not experts on how society is going to pan out. But just from a sort of legal framework, we can say that um, an awful lot of governments don't look as though they are taking this as seriously uh, in practice as they seem to be doing in paper. As we speak, schools and businesses are closed in New Delhi, India, because the air is too toxic to breathe. And like China, the Indian government will face strong pressure to clean this pollution up. Uh, when they do, and other governments do that, what happens to the warming and to the carbon burning that we allowed ourselves? So there are there are two different factors to consider here. Um, firstly, when people um, hopefully move away from coal, um, as you say, we see much cleaner air as a result from, from moving away from coal, although we also see uh, cleaner air as a result of moving away from biomass burning. So India has the problem that there's pressure currently on a lot of people using biomass burning, which is very low in CO2 emissions um, because the biomass is uh, accumulated ultimately um, from, from plant growth, which means it's sort of net zero uh, on a whole cycle basis. But it also um, is going to contribute to air pollution. So a lot of the pollution in homes is due to people burning biomass inside their home. Um, so they have that trouble that the first step uh, is usually to move from biomass burning to fossil fuel burning which doesn't help the climate at all, but it does uh, help local air quality. Um, and it's only the stage after that where China is at at the moment, where you sort of see um, homes moving from burning uh, fossil fuels to maybe induction pans or other uh, more environmentally friendly ways of, of heating your home and heating your food, uh, which are more electrified and sort of like the, the whole process doesn't rely on um, burning biomass locally or burning uh, fossil fuels locally. Um, and therefore, you can slide in renewable energy as the power source. Um, so for China, we, we've seen some progress in trying to increase the level of renewable energy in the grid. India, as I say, is still at that stage where like, they are putting renewable energy in, but they're also um, building more coal power plants. And it's not clear when we'd expect this to change. Um, both these countries now do have net zero targets, but neither of the net zero targets necessitate them to um, start reducing emissions immediately. 
Um, so this is a concern in that it's not clear that whether their air quality is going to get better before it gets worse. Hopefully, there, there will be political pressure and, and a political appetite to clean up the air pollution, which is, uh, you know, causing so many health problems in these countries and, of course, throughout the world. But it's just not entirely clear at the moment which uh, of the political forces is going to win out in the short term to bring that down. The other effect uh, from, from this burning of, of various different things is the production of aerosols and smog. So obviously, these are things that are, are bad for the health, but actually they have a slight cooling effect on our planet. And because we're burning so much and have been burning so much historically, um, this has slightly helped to offset some of the warming effect from uh, carbon dioxide and the other greenhouse gases. So as you see the levels of smog decrease, you will expect to see a slight increase in temperature. Not as much as the increase that you see from the continued uh, fossil fuels because the, the um, greenhouse gases accumulate, whereas the aerosols don't accumulate. They, they're sort of washed out of the atmosphere quite frequently and, and they don't last very long. But on the whole, we do think that um, as we bring down levels of burning and levels of greenhouse gas, hopefully as we tend towards net zero, you will see some bounce back from the, the temperature uh, cooling effects of those aerosols, perhaps a few fractions of a degree. Currently, this would, would probably not be quite enough to tip us over 1.5, but there are different estimates on that, and there's a bit of uncertainty. If you had a, a discussion about the Hansen paper last week, I guess you'll have gone into a lot of detail on this. Now, using the language of climate conferences and international pledges, your group finds holes and improbabilities. You echo that back in the same language with the best models and techniques available. I almost wonder if your new paper isn't a bit subversive. Isn't it a case of the carbon budget like an emperor with no clothes? I think we do show that the carbon budget is now sufficiently small that it's very difficult to use politically. And I think it's also fair to say that really few, if any, countries, certainly no major countries, are, are compatible with a 1.5 degrees climate target in, in terms of their emissions behaviour. You can see that from our group, but you can also see that from, from many other groups, including the Climate Action Tracker, which has a sort of a, a very useful thermometer way of sort of grading countries by what temperature you'd expect to get if other countries followed a similar level of effort. So I guess we are... We're subversive, but we're not um, unusually subversive, I, I guess you'd say. Um, we're, we're here trying to do, you know, we don't view ourselves as being here making political statements for the sake of making political statements. We want to produce, uh, you know, a, as accurate an assessment as we can. But at the same time, like, yes, it, if it is the case that the emperor has no clothes on, then when you do the analysis, the conclusion is the emperor has no clothes on, right? Yeah, I, I think that's... An unfortunate factor about statistics, you know, it's very difficult to hide things unless you make a strong effort to hide things in statistics. Okay, bottom line, what is the latest best estimate for a carbon budget for a chance at a livable world at 1.5 degrees C or a survivable world at least at 2 degrees of warming? So the carbon budget for 1.5 degrees uh, is 250 gigatons, which is uh, six years. Of, of current uh, emissions. For the two degrees budget, so you have the different uh, probability targets. You've got a, a well below two degrees, which would be maybe like a 90% chance of being below two degrees. So for the 90% chance of being below two degrees, this would be about 12 years of current emissions. For a 66% chance, that would be about 23 years uh, of current emissions. So for these, you're, you're sort of talking about net zero dates that are double that period, because hopefully 
uh, as you go to net zero, you're declining. Um, so for a 23, you know, you, you sort of got 50 years to get to net zero. Maybe that's something that that um, is not hugely different to what levels of, of effort governments are saying at the moment. Um, but for 90 degrees, again, we're, we're sort of talking about uh, net zero dates before 2050. So not really compatible with the levels of ambition that we currently see. Uh, you and your colleagues have been pretty busy publishing this year. What are you working on next, Robin? Ooh, uh, so I, I'm working on quite a lot of projects at the moment. One thing that I'm excited about is looking at carbon debt estimates, which is looking at the amount of the carbon budget that's been used up by different countries and the extent to which that uh, has an obligation for those countries to help other countries uh, to remove uh, carbon dioxide. I'm also looking at something that people keep asking me for, but strictly speaking, we shouldn't be telling you yet, which is when you say, what is the likelihood that we are going to be below certain temperatures? Well, the analyses we've done so far don't really allow us to give probabilities that we will do a certain thing in terms of emissions. But people would like to know that so they can sort of plan their lives around, you know, what amount of sea level rise they need to adjust for, uh, what sort of warming they need to adjust for, all of these sorts of things. So I'm looking at techniques that might allow us to at least start answering that question in terms of probabilities of temperature rises. We would all like to know. From the Centre for Environmental Policy, Imperial College London, we've been speaking with Dr. Robin Lambole. You can find links to the science we discussed along with notes to follow up in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Robin, thank you so much for talking us through this. Thank you for having the time to listen. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. When it comes to the imaginary carbon budget, the United Nations just dropped depressing news. Their new 2023 production gap report finds governments plan to produce double the fossil fuels in 2030 than the 1.5 degrees C warming limit allows. I am arranging an interview to find out more. This confirms what I've been telling you for months. Big fossil fuel companies made stunning profits in the last couple of years. Their CEOs and boards of directors are plowing it right back into more oil, coal, and gas production. The stuff that made them the money. Lots more fracking. New wells, new mines, new pipelines. We are getting committed until the 2040s, the 2050s. It's all fossil fuels from here on out. Oh, heavenly grid, help us bear up thy standard. Our chevron flashing bright across the Gulf of Compromise, standing humble on the rich field of mobile American thinking, here in this shell we call life. Middle East dictators are all in, including Sultan Adjabar of the United Arab Emirates. He's the leader of the next COP28 climate conference, the group that's supposed to get us out of this mess. From alleged progressives like Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau to conservatives like the UK's Rishi Sunak, they all approve more, more, more fossil fuels. So after years of dithering, the plan is in. The biggest corporations, the biggest nations have decided. Your climate will be overheated, flooded, drought-ridden, and on fire, and then it gets worse for our kids. That is the big plan now, unless a revolution of sanity somehow breaks out. Will we try against impossible odds? or ride it out to a hostile world 
as humans and their animal friends get pushed off the planet. Stay tuned. I'm Alex Smith. I appreciate your heart and your time. Thank you for listening to Radio EcoShock and caring about our world. It sounds like a big experiment we're running on the Earth. Do we really know what's coming? Well, that's exactly right. We're running an unknown experiment on the only planet we have. It, it, you know, if somebody were to propose doing this kind of experiment, they would be locked up as crazy because it's the only planet we have. And yet that's the experiment we're doing without knowing fully what the consequences are. <laughs> 